both some psychology and some philosophy. This was uh, attempting to keep with the, the aims of the conference. Um, and uh, especially I'm interested in figuring out the conditions under which some psychological research can help us uh, in our quest to answer a particular moral question, which is about how much priority, if any, we should give to the worst off uh, in distributive cases. So what I'm going to do is I'll present parts of the result of an experiment of my own. I'll draw on some experiments by others, uh, but in, in essence, the, the beginning and the end will be the philosophy. But before we get started, let me engage you in an experiment myself. So here's a figure. I didn't make this up. This is from health state evaluation literature. Um, basically, in uh, the evaluation of health state, when we're looking at health-related well-being or quality of life, health economists assign conditions to a zero to one scale. And this is a cardinal scale. And this means that gaps in the scale are significant. So, for example, moving from point 0.14 to point 0.32, right, that's a gap of one, uh, 0.18, is just as significant as uh, a gap of 0.18 further up the scale. So it's not like a money scale, where if this were thousands of dollars a month, equal increments in $1,000 would do less for you. Right? Now, this is a well-being scale, so equal increments are, by definition, constructed so that uh, an equally large increment does as much for you, whatever the starting point on the scale. Okay. So uh, this is a scale of health-related quality of life. It goes below death. You might be interested to know that on the health utilities index, there are some conditions worse than death, and the lowest you can go is minus uh, 0.37 for some reason. <laughs> Maybe because the imaginations of health economists run dry at a certain point of, of uh, nastiness. Um, but these numbers are the typical or representative results on the health utilities index developed by McMaster's University used um, in Canadian healthcare allocation questions. Okay, so this is the health-related quality of life of living in a bit particular condition for the rest, for the duration of your life. So, for example, completely blind, get somewhere around the 0.5 mark. <coughs> that means that it's about half as, it's the same distance from being dead to completely blind as from completely blind to perfect health. This is as much of a gain in well-being as this with the typical representative respondent in these types of surveys. Okay, now I'm not going to discuss the origins or the quality of this measurement. I'm going to take it as given and ask you in the uh, short two questions that are going to follow to take it as given. Imagine that you are a um, health expert or a manager who now has to make decisions on the basis of this notion of people's well-being. You may disagree with it personally, but assume that you accept it, this scale, and the numbers that they represent as accurate representations of people's health-related quality of life. 
Now, please answer the following questions. Take a note if you can. It would be interesting. So, you have to make a decision. And this, again, is not made up. Of course, health professionals have to make decisions like this, managers. There's one group at 0.95, whom you can, uh, 48 people, whom you can move to one, full health. There's another group at 0.91, 27 people, whom you can move to full health. Which group do you treat? You can't treat both. And treating them restores them to full health for the duration of a normal lifespan. Same idea. So there's a group of 10 people who are in a position in a quality of life which is somewhat better, but just marginally better than death. Okay, that's what 0 0.05 means. It doesn't mean they're about to die. It means that's the quality of life they will live the rest of their life in. It's not worse than dying. By hypothesis, the number is higher than zero. You can either save them or 50 people who are at well-being point eight. Whom do you say? Get it's useful if you make it up. It'll make it more fun later on. Good. All right. So, disregarding, not disregarding, take, having noted and then passing by, Auntie's claim that this type of question does not elicit your intuitions. And I look forward to a good discussion about this. I'm going to take these two things that you just, these two questions you just answered as examples of, it, of uh, intuitive judgments about cases. Okay. Um, and this is the moral question that we might use cases like this to help us answer a notoriously difficult question. How much additional weight, if any, ought we to give to the worse off? in distributive cases. Utilitarians obviously say none whatsoever. At least those who endorse something like Maximin, although Rawls never did that in health, would say infinite. Many views lie somewhere in between, but even, you know, I regard myself as to the left, so to speak, on this spectrum, as in um, wanting to give some extra weight to the worse off, but how much I have no general answer that I can give you. I would consult my intuitive judgment. I would look at cases, seeing how much gains and how much total well-being I'm prepared to lose, so to speak, in order to make sure that the worst off uh, gains something. So I think that's a question that I believe we must turn to our moral intuitive judgments in cases to help us answer. So that's my time. But which judgments can we trust? Uh, here, I think, is where psychology comes in. And this is what I'm going to argue today, drawing on some of my own research. Um, I'll argue that the first alternative you looked at, the 48 at 0.95 or the 27 at 0.91, is inappropriate because it induces the use of what I would argue is an unreliable heuristic, that, which I'll call similarity-based decision-making. I'll explain what that is uh, in the talk. But that, oh, sorry, that's just one element. The other element is others' research, 
course, I'm just going to be looking at one part. And I'm going to argue that alternatives involving numbers larger than one person may be problematic. That those, some of these problems can be exaggerated by people like Paul Slovich, and, and I see there may be reasons for overcoming them, uh, ways of overcoming them. So, uh, and then I'll try to draw some positive conclusions. So, both delineating the types of cases in which we cannot rely on our intuitions and other types of cases in which we can. So, this is what the talk will look like. I'll, talk, I'll explain what similarity-based decision-making is. I'll explain my experiment and the results. Then I'll uh, do a quick point survey of a few points in other psychological experiments. And then I'll arrive at philosophical conclusions. <clears throat> so, what is similarity-based decision-making? Well, basically, it's a heuristic or shortcut for making decisions between alternatives uh, which are different along varying dimensions and which don't allow us, which we can't easily trade off. So this is, uh, the, I mean, it starts in Tversky's work and there's a lot in it in psychology, but here's the, the formalization that Ariel Rubinstein, an economist, uses. It says, when you're deciding between alternatives I and J, which have two dimensions, D1 and D2, uh, a decision maker goes through the following procedure. Now, the alternatives we looked at before, that you, you started out with, involve two dimensions, right? Number of people you save and the severity of harm you save them from. But this is quite general. It could be how big is your house and how far is it from work. Anything with two dimensions where you have no easy way of trading them off. You have no ready-at-hand single scale. Well, first thing you look for dominance. That's easy, right? If Alternative J is better along the first dimension and better along the second dimension than it's preferred. You might think, why even write this down in the decision procedure? But it's, it's interesting that um, if you do a, what's called a global evaluation, but you sometimes make mistakes. So one house is slightly larger than the other and somewhat closer to work. But you make mistakes in your estimates of these things. Right? Or you misremember it, or you, first you do a kind of, you sit down and you calculate your, how good is this house index, and then you compare the two indices with each other, if in that calculation you might make a mistake, then this precludes those types of mistakes. Right? So it's not trivial to have a dominant step. But, of course, those aren't the hard cases. Then you look for similarities. So if there's no dominance, you look for similarities along the first dimension and the second dimension, if there's similarity in one dimension only, you eliminate that dimension, and you base your decision on the other dimension. So if J is similar to I along the first dimension, D1, but dissimilar to I along the second dimension, and J is better along the second dimension than I, then J is preferred to I. And doing this with two dimensions, you can do it with as many as you like. Of course, this might not resolve everything. They might be similar along both dimensions or dissimilar along both dimensions. And then stage three, you do something else. Okay. Now, the core then is this. <coughs> this bit here. Basically, it, it uh, enables you to not make trade-offs. You find these trade-offs difficult, vexing. You feel you might get them wrong. So this is a kind of mental shortcut 
You say, this house is 40 minutes from work, the other one's 45, that's not a big deal, but the other one has a guest bedroom, right? That's a big deal. Right? You've never explicitly traded off the size of your house against the minutes from work. Now, uh, Tversky was the first to suggest something like this. I'll give you an example. Um, <clears throat> it was with Harvard undergraduates. He said, he invited some Harvard undergraduates, and he said, guys, we need a new scientific system of who to let into the university. And who better to ask than you, the elect, you know, you know what it's like to be here, you know what the qualities are that we need in a good Harvard man, this is early, of course, man or woman, let's say it's already in the 60s, and we have three dimensions on which we have this new scientific ranking procedure of candidates. And the dimensions were presented on a card. So candidate would get, they would get cards A and B, pairwise comparison, intelligence on the zero to 100 scale, emotional stability and sociability, zero to 100. And they were asked to make pairwise choices. Well, the thought is, I've never traded these off before. How might I do this? Well, 69.72, that looks pretty similar. Oh, but look, this one's significantly more emotional, stable, and a lot more fun to be around. Okay, so I'll go for A over B. And then he produced a series like this. And you can see how that would go. By this type of reasoning, you always prefer A over B, B over C, C over D, D over E. But now compare E to A. Comparison. What a gap in intelligence. This is Harvard we're talking about, right? We've got to let the smart geek in, right? Uh, sorry, this one, uh, that one, the smart geek. I was betraying my preference. Um, so the thought is, he, he thought I can reveal people are using this similarity-based heuristic by finding systematic intransitivities. <coughs> um, now, if it's a heuristic, that is, it helps us solve difficult decision-making problems, we should find it everywhere in nature. And I didn't actually want to say, you know, birds do it, bees do it. But uh, they do. As it happens, I, I thought, let me look in biology journals. We have a uh, study finding uh, this type of similarity-based decision-making among hoarding gray jays where the two dimensions of the option was the length of the tube that you had to crawl into and the number of raisins at the end of the tube, right? You could get Gray J's to cycle and uh, bees, something similar. Um, and here's the joke for those really, the really in crowd. You know, the standard uh, comment about people who have intransitive preferences is that they can be honeypot. Right, uh, money pumped. I mean, ah, I gave the joke away. Forget <laughs> it. Uh, the bee, the bee is turned into a honey pump. Anyway, okay. <sighs> My one joke, and I ruined it. Okay, here's what the experiment looked like. Um, two dimensions: healthcare allocation choices, health gain through treatment, and the number of people saved. And the health gain was measured by the health utilities index that you saw. Here's the first choice you faced. Right? And there were a lot of choices like this. Now, <clears throat> here's what I thought might happen. If 0.95 and 0.1 are judged to be similar, 
But 48 is judged to be dissimilar from 27. Then you say they're similar in terms of the harms they eliminate. Very dissimilar in terms of the number of people saved. Save this. Who, who voted for this sign? Only two. <laughs> Very disappointing. Are people afraid to admit? There's nothing wrong here. Maybe it was brilliant. No? Oh, this is, you're not going to trust my results. <laughs> um, however, this involves giving priority to the better off at a cost in total utility. So there's more total utility and you're helping the worse off if you help this side. You should ask who chose the second. It might only be two again. Oh, right. right. <laughs> so <clears throat> how do people actually normally make decisions, health care allocation decisions? There have been a lot of surveys. Uh, and uh, to your left, we have uh, Rawls. And uh, this means you're prepared to sacrifice total utility for the sake of the worst off. Here you're, I, I don't really want to attribute this to Nietzsche, but I needed someone on the maximax odds. Here you're prepared to sacrifice total utility for the sake of the better off. This is the normal range. So when people have been asked about healthcare allocation choices, the large literature which shows them somewhere in this range. They're not utilitarians. Even in the United States. They're not utilitarian. So it started out in Norway. Eric Nord did this stuff. And people said, oh, it's Norway. Right? <laughs> and then uh, they did it in, in other areas. And it's actually very consistent, not where people are exactly, but that they are in this range. <clears throat> so how do you show that people are using a heuristic? You show it by, by finding behavior, not that the heuristic leads you to sensible behavior, or normal behavior, but rather that it leads you outside of the normal range. That's, and then you infer to the best explanation that the heuristic is being used. So, and that's quite important. Heuristics have this bad name, so to speak, that, that people are stupid because they use heuristics. But that may be in part because the way we find out that they're using a heuristic is by eliciting behavior which doesn't have an, uh, an explanation in ordinary, rational, kind of careful calculations. So if people are using similarity-based decision-making, and I could get them into this uncommon range in similarity-based alternatives, but show that in non-similarity alternatives they're back in the normal range, that would give evidence of the use of a heuristic. So that's what I was trying to do. That's what the first choice that you faced was like. The second choice that we faced was a non-similarity choice. So here are the alternatives again, just so you can see. A and B, number of people, sum of the gain of treatment is less if you help the better off. So if you're utilitarian or prioritarian or a maximum, whatever you go for, B. Only one alternative is in the normal range. So I thought I would construct a sequence like this. Now it gets progressively harder to do this just by the nature of numbers. So here we have 0 0.91, 0 0.87, 2719. So the thought again would be someone might think these are quite similar. 27 is a lot more than 19. I go for B, but the preference for B over C uh, again reveals 
giving priority to the better off at a loss in total utility. And so on down the range. So one prediction, as you can see here at the bottom, 0 0.83, 0 0.87 might look similar, but 15 and 12 might also look quite similar. So one prediction would be, if there's any effect, we would see it much more frequently in the choice between A and B than in the choice lower down. So here's, if there's similarity-based decision-making and between adjacent alternatives, the number of people is judged dissimilar while health gain is judged similar, then we would expect A over B over C over D over E, but all preferences in the normal range would be inverted. So that's the only one in the normal range. B is the one that I've circled. <clears throat> now, of course, then, I need contrasting ones. I need to find cases in which they're dissimilar on both dimensions, but, um, again, there's only one of the two alternatives falls within this quote-unquote normal range, because I need to be able to distinguish just errors or people not understanding what's going on, just going, like, ah, just give me the money for the experiment, right? Choosing one way randomly from uh, this type of error. So again, the thought is the sum of gain from the treatment doesn't differ very much. Here are some who are badly off, much worse off, so there's a big gap here, but there's also quite a big gap here between 10 and 20. Now, in this case, you help the worst off and you get the most total utility if you choose R over S. So that would be this choice. So here's the thought. If there's similarity-based decision-making, then we get priority for the better off in similarity cases and back in the normal range in non-similarity choices. But I thought I should look at, an even, at a further test of this idea. As I said at the beginning, in the normal range, people aren't just in the normal range. Most of them are quite far to your left in the normal range. They're willing to sacrifice quite a lot of total utility for the sake of the worst off. So I thought then I would have a series of alternatives that distinguish between those willing to give priority to the worst off at a, at a, a loss in total utility and those who are utilitarian. This was one of the, the second choice you faced. People whose quality of life is just slightly better than death, 10 people, the sum of the gain is 9.5. If you help the 50 people who are already much better off, you have a slightly higher total amount of utility. So if you prefer to help the worst off, you're prepared to sacrifice total utility. Who uh, helped the worst off in this, in this initial case? Okay, so much more interesting. So that was this one. <clears throat> so, if you're not just in the normal range on the edge, a utilitarian, but you're willing to sacrifice some total utility for the sake of the worst off, then I would predict the following pattern. Priority for the better off in similarity choices, in the normal range for non-similarity choices, but then also priority for the worst off in choices like the one I just showed you, where you have to choose between being a utilitarian and um, helping the worst off. So what was the experience of the experiment? It was an explanation of the health utilities index, 
so I showed them the graph that you saw at the beginning, and then there was about four pages explaining uh, screen you had to click through explaining what this means that it's a cardinal scale that they don't have to accept this that they don't have to personally believe that this is the right value for the health conditions mentioned but that it is the scale that's being used and they're being asked to endorse etc um, then there was a practice session of four choices which didn't count they faced 16 choice pairs which were repeated three times in random uh, order and left and right were also randomized. So to try to eliminate order effects and eliminate right and left effects. Um, so they would face the same pair of alternatives three times and I took two over one or three over zero to be expressing a preference. So they made a total of 48 choices. Then there was a basic understanding test. One involved dominance. So one saved more people from a worse illness. And that's to make sure that they weren't sleeping through the experience. Um, five choices were picked out afterwards by the computer, came up on the screen, and it said, you chose this way. Why? Can you please explain your choice? That's the uh, confabulation bit of the experiment. <laughs> uh, the session was one hour. Now, when I, I ran this in a lab of economists, and they say, what is your incentive? You have to incentivize them. I said, I don't know, you know, I can't. No, they always have to have an incentive. So I defied them, and I just paid people a fixed fee, but I thought I would get them in the state of mind to get them to take it seriously by saying in advance that, uh, you know, talking that these are real choices being made, that we need to know their judgments to find out how people make these choices and how they should be made, and moreover, at the end, that they would be able to donate five pounds to a charity of their choice from the screen. So to get them in the state of mind to take it seriously, even though no money for them was at stake. And I think they did take it seriously because you could click through the 48 choices in five minutes and be done. But the average session took about an hour. Um, of course, there was the intro and stuff. There were 82 subjects. So let me go through the results. <clears throat> Here's the test. Right? but it's also the first stage in the similarity-based decision-making. People always prefer the dominant option. I was very afraid when I looked at this because I thought this is going to show that half the students weren't paying attention or didn't understand what was going on. But out of 82 subjects, 76 chose the dominant option three times out of three. And three chose the dominant option two to one. Um, and then there were three subjects who Dis, who dispreferred the dominant option, I excluded them from the sample. But if you, even if you include 3 out of 82, it's not going to change significantly this, the statistical results that I get. But I was very happy with this because it meant they weren't clicking through randomly. Now, here's one of the main issues, right? Prediction 2 is that priority for the better off at a cost and total utility will be more frequent in similarity choices. <clears throat> so, here are my similarity alternatives. A versus B is the first one you did. Right? Here are my non-similarity alternatives. This is the percentage of time that people prefer the better off, to help the better off, at a cost and total utility. So, think for a moment. If everyone was always in the normal range, what would this graph look like?
it would look like this. It would be empty. No one would ever help the better off at a cost in total utility. So any departure from this shows people choosing outside of the normal range. Now what is this prediction? Well, this prediction is whatever we get here, we're going to get something here because some you know, people make errors. Now if this is very high, then we really can't trust anyone's judgment in my experiment. The experiment would be a failure. The main point is that this be higher than this, and that it be declining. Remember, A versus B was meant to be the, the most persuasive one, although in this room, apparently not. <laughs> so here's the baseline, so to speak. In the dissimilarity cases, around 85% of all choices on any of these ones was a preference in the normal range. That's pretty good, I think, given how close they were together, right? It was quite finely balanced. Um, so anything above that is going to be, significantly above that is going to be indicative of similarity-based decision-making. But, oops. Uh, what's happening? Yes, here we go. This is the result. So in A versus B, contrary to this room, 58% of my subjects Expl uh, displayed a preference for saving the 48 at 0.95 instead of the 27 at 0.91. And it declines as one would predict. And that's obviously a significant difference. I didn't do the stats right here, but uh, there's no way in a sample of 80 people making three choices each that we could get such a difference through just random fluctuation. Um, so here's the third prediction. In dissimilar choices, the large majority have preferences in the normal range and most display priority for the worst off. So what's the result? 78% chose within the normal range in all three of the core dissimilarity choices. So you saw that in each choice it was 85%. But of course we're now asking for people to hit it three times. So get it right on three different sets of pairwise choices. 78%, which I think is very high, actually. Um, and of these, so 69% of the total population also chose the prioritarian option, are willing to help the worst off. Three hit the utilitarian one in all 48 choices. It's quite extraordinary. I thought, how do you do it? Because I tried to make it such that you can't, they didn't allow, um, they weren't allowed to calculate, and um, that uh, the numbers wouldn't generally easily come to mind. And in the comments section at the end, one of the two who wrote this said, I study theoretical physics. This was easy. I figured out the answer every time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and this is a mix, right? This is a very demanding criterion, I think, these two. And it's surprising how consistent people were. I was surprised. So, of course, I gave you just the population level data. What we're interested in is individuals who consistently display a pattern across their choices. So, what we want is a tendency to give priority to the better off in the similarity choices and a tendency to be within the normal range on the dissimilar choices. <clears throat> now, how did I operationalize this? Three out of four of the adjacent pairs in the A to E, the first is preferred. I didn't demand it on all 
because firstly there's some trembling hand issue and so people make small errors but secondly the, the theory doesn't in fact predict that you do it on all four it predicts that it's more likely on the first and the second and the third etc and all three key dissimilar choices are within the normal range so there I was stricter now what we get is 30% of the population fit these two criteria together. You might think that's not uh, a huge amount, but I think uh, if we look at the number of choices that these people have to do this across, it's, it's very unlikely, again, if the default is it's just random noise, there's no system in the way people are choosing, you would get nowhere near this percentage. Now, I just want to lift out one uh, person, of course, it can't illustrate all, I mean, it's, it's just, of course, I chose one that, that fits what I'm, what I'm trying to illustrate, so it's not representative of everyone. This was subject 35, had <coughs> the whole similarity pattern, and the comment on the two of them was, small difference in sickness between the two options, but a greater number of people treated. So that's articulating a form of similarity-based decision-making. Interestingly, then they inverted, they got uh, intransitivity here, because E to A, they said where the gaps are is dissimilar on both dimensions. But on treating fewer number of people, those left untreated have almost perfect health. So there they give priority to the worst all. Uh, this person was normal on the three dissimilar choices. And then giving priority on the two dissimilar choices while, help, while helping, helping the worst off costs utility. And there the comment was, though treating fewer people, those treated are near death whereas those untreated are still relatively healthy, even without treatment. So here's what I get in terms of overall shares. Uh, and of course, this is a matter of interpretation. You're looking at each individual's pattern of choice, and you have some criteria. What do I fit them with? So here, with similarity-based decision-making roughly tied with consistent prioritarianism, or priority for the worst off. They might also be egalitarian. Here, they switched between sometimes they chose the utilitarian option, sometimes the prioritarian option, so they assign it there. There were some who had a different heuristic, always save the greater number of people, seemed to me. And then here, uh, no consistent pattern emerges. And I think there's not so much, a, maybe it's a failing of my interpretation, but I think it's also important to note how many uh, don't fit in any of the, the categories that I could put up on the board, which is, again, about a third. So if we had to put it in a nutshell, a third similarity-based decision-making, a third consistent prioritarianism, and a third, I don't know. So descriptively, what do I take away from this? One is that there's evidence for the use of this heuristic in moral choices by a significant share of subjects. Second is that um, people's, this is getting more important think, beyond the first descriptive one, that people's judgments in these similarity cases are not in line with theoretically justifiable judgments and their own moral judgments in other cases. So we have a tension here between both what theory and their own choices justify in other cases and what they reveal in, these, in the similarity cases. <clears throat> but also, more positively, I don't want this news here to be only negative. In the non-similarity cases, which are not easy choices, subjects' choices have a very strong tendency, around 80%, to fall within a theoretically, on reflection, uh, 
acceptable range. Now, what, that's just descriptive. What about normative? I think we should trust our judgments in similarity cases. And there are a lot of cases in the moral literature on distributive ethics which involve similarity along one or both dimensions. I think especially Temkin's recent book, uh, Larry Temkin's book on uh, Rethinking the Good, all his sequence cases involve small changes in the uh, large, large differences, significantly different numbers of people you can save from severities which differ by a small degree. I think those are dubious if this is correct. But in non-similarity cases, our subjects' choices seem quite reliable. And this is interesting because I know in the literature on, on reflective equilibrium, uh, there are some authors who argue, look, we have no, you know, uh, moral philosophy is totally different from the sciences. We can't use our intuitive judgments as data points. Why? Because, you know, uh, when you look at the stars through your telescope, you've tested the telescope first on other things, and you know it's pretty good for those things, so you infer tentatively that it's going to be good when you're looking at the stars. Well, I actually think moral philosophy is not so different in this respect. We have, I think, theories in which I have a great deal of confidence that tells us we're somewhere in between, we should be, somewhere in between Rawls and Mill in these pure distributive cases. Where precisely, I don't know. Well, we can test whether people's judgments in trade-off cases fall, have a strong tendency to fall within this range. That is like testing your telescope on things where you know the answer, and then use it in other cases that share the relevant features of the thing in which you saw it work well. That's my thought. Now, um, how am I for time? Uh, got, um, six okay, let me briefly see what some other psychological experiments in this domain of distributive ethics have to teach us. Here's a normative claim. This is again following the same structure. You have a normative claim that you think our, our judgment should conform to this at least. And then um, we have a descriptive claim saying they do or don't conform to this. The normative claim is providing a benefit of a given size to n people who are at a, a given initial level of well-being. Right? Suppose they're all blind. Helping five blind people is better than providing this benefit to just one person. So helping five blind people is better than one. That is, I mean, anything is uncontroversial. Uh, well, nothing is uncontroversial. I'm Oxford, and of course, there's Elizabeth Anscombe's paper, Who's Wrong? Anyway, uh, that I think is, is a relatively weak moral claim, which I'm prepared to accept. Slovich has a paper summarizing uh, research in psychology showing that people seem to have judgments of moral importance which violate this. <clears throat> Here's the way the argument runs, very roughly. It's my own reconstruction. Our moral intuitions about whom to aid are influenced by affect or emotion. Affect is influenced by the strength of identification. Identification is stronger with a single individual than with a group. Therefore, the influence of effective responses that runs via identification, this may not be the only source of affect, but it's one important source, will be stronger with an individual than with a group, 
and this will dis depress the intuitively perceived moral importance of aiding groups vis-a-vis -vis aiding an individual, leading to a violation of the first norm. Now, here's just one illustrative example. There are many more. You may have heard of this. It's an experiment by Kovut and Ritov. What they did was, they said, they pre presented some, in, some subjects with the, a vignette of one child. Call her Sarah. Sarah has a very rare condition. She will die unless, she's two years old, there was a picture of Sarah, unless uh, $300,000 is raised within the next two months. Then she will be fully cured. How much are you willing to contribute? And they had given them money which they could keep for themselves or give. Okay. Other half of the subjects got the very same description, except there are eight children with pictures, eight children who together need 300,000 to cure them, right? So that's eight times as cheap. Right? Um, how much are you prepared to give? Well, here they were willing to give six shekels, and here three. These are real amounts of money. This is the one person identified single, and this is identified group. They weren't anonymous. They had pictures and names. And they thought, what's the root to this? Well, they singled out distress. So they asked people to self-report their distress on a uh, one to seven scale of learning of this case, which was significantly higher than here. I've left out the stats, but that's the idea. Okay. <clears throat> now, does this mean, you know, it, apparently it doesn't come from Stalin, but we all know the quote, right? One death is a tragedy, uh, a million is a statistic, right? In reading Slovich's paper, one gets the, the thought that he wants to say, one death is a tragedy, two is a statistic to you guys. That's how bad you are at reasoning morally. There's a very important thing here um, that we're talking about between subject indirect comparison experiments. These, what I mean by between subject is one group gets one vignette, another group gets another vignette. They don't see both vignettes. And it's an indirect comparison of importance via how much are you willing to give in, so to speak, what is also one might regard as, many people regard it as an imperfect duty anyway. So you might think it's fine to let your emotions determine how much you're going to give if you, re if you believe, I'm not saying it is optional, but if you believe it's optional to contribute anyway. So I think it's a very specific element, and I, it's a wonderful paper by Slovich, but he over eggs the pudding. He goes far, much too far in the, in the conclusions. So, within subject direct comparison experiments, I do not think you would observe this. So, if you'd done the vignette as follows, Alicia will die unless 300,000 pounds is raised. If it's raised, she'll be fully cured. Eight children, and you name them pictures, will die unless 300,000 is raised. If it is raised, all eight will be fully cured. You can choose to donate to Alicia or to the eight. Who do you choose to donate and how much? I very much doubt that we would observe the same effect. Obviously not, because now they're being compared. Now, of course, my experiment is a within-subject experiment. But people had to make trade-offs. They weren't doing indirect comparisons. And we saw that in my experiment, or, or one other thing, it deals with modest-sized groups in each alternative. And it does not show violations of the norm. There's no neglect of the number of people being saved. In fact, it plays an important role in some people's decisions, too strong a role in some people's decisions. So one lesson here is 
well, I'm not a psychologist, although I got my hands a little bit dirty in the lab. It's a general comment which I'll permit myself now. Uh, when one reads psychologists' assessments of our moral intuitive judgments, there's a very strong desire to run beyond the very interesting and important evidence and draw very grand conclusions on the basis of the small data set. That's definitely true in Slovich's paper, which is written with other leading psychologists in the field. What they say is important enough, significant enough for us, without drawing the conclusion, we can't deal with numbers at all. Right? Our moral sense is totally screwed. It's only for one-to-one -one comparisons, etc. So uh, that's my little uh, remark. Still, there are other reasons, going beyond these experiments, to be skeptical of our ability now, I dealt with modest size groups. The largest number of size I had was 50. Consciously chose it that way. Very large numbers I would be suspicious of even in within subject direct comparisons. Um, and why am I suspicious? Well, there's a wonderful book called The Number Sense about our, our, our mathematical intuition, in which he speaks of the way um, large numbers are not really finely distinguished from each other in our mental mapping and he has various experiments to show that. That's not moral experiments but it, you might start to get worried about very large numbers. So what I conclude I think is this. <clears throat> this is the following type of case we should rule out. Common among health economists also common among philosophers Francis Cam, Larry Temkin, Thomas Scanlon, etc. Even much more extreme than this, but this is already ruled out, I think. The following question. Chad is going to die. He's a young man, but you can save him. However, if you save him, you can't save uh, some other number of people from mild chronic pain. 0.95 on the scale. What's the number of people whom you could save instead from mild chronic pain such that you would be approximately indifferent between saving Chad and this number of people. Now, interestingly, about a third of people in some experiments, health economist experiments, say there is no number. They say a million, two million, ten million, right? Uh, showing the compression of large numbers, right? And they bounce around between 100,000, etc. And the economists say, oh, well, people don't know how to answer this question. The people like Francis Cam and Larry Temkin say, no, this shows that there is no number. Right? For a very small harm, no number of very small harms can outweigh one young person's saving of one person's life. I think nothing can be learned from this example. Why? For two reasons. One, <clears throat> Slovich's work does show that we should be careful of the force of the identification with one effect. Okay? That may lead us to overweight the importance of one person as compared to a group. Second, this is likely to be a very large number. And the work by Dehana and stuff on the number sense suggests to us, and also just one's own experience, that we cannot take in the moral significance of large numbers and even in other areas, we can't deal appropriately with large numbers. But this, okay, so I've been negative. No similarity uh, choices. No 
one identified individual versus large number of other choices. But I think this is the paradigm of something that I think we can rely on. If I can't rely on this, I'm really out of business because a lot of my work is in distributive ethics and I use cases like this. So Bob is at point one five. You can move him to point three. I've given you the descriptions. Again, these are real descriptions of uh, cases. Anne is at point eight four, and you can move her to what? <clears throat> what would you choose? Well, let's let's go almost at the end. Let's take another vote. Um, Note, by the way, that this is uh, a slightly smaller improvement than this. Marginally greater improvement in well-being. Who would help Anne? No one. Who would help Bob? Right, most. Okay, good. So that's uh, where exactly what most people, this is from the first experiment that Eric Nord did. Almost everyone says help Bob in this case. By the way, we're in Britain. If you phone up the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, nice, only the country of Orwell could have a health allocation authority which denies people access to drugs because they're not cost effective, called nice. It's fun, I mean, some civil servant, when he was leaving, decided I'm going to shaft the whole institution by calling it nice. Anyway, um, nice, if you call them up, we'll say and. Nice is essentially utilitarian, it espouses two principles, utilitarian and egalitarian, but de facto, its cost-effectiveness measure and, all, its other, and uh, all the decisions that I've reviewed, I mean, there are many hundreds, I, I've reviewed a sample, are utilitarian. They give they do maximum good, maximum amount of health-related quality of life in the population. So what's the philosophical conclusion? So this was my starting point, this was my claim, Intuitive judgments must play a role in finding the answer. But which ones should we use? Well, here are my attempts to say these we should not use. And I think also this has some bite because a lot of philosophical examples do uh, fall within my prohibited area. Similarity cases and large number cases, especially large number versus identified individual cases. But here's what I think, at least I haven't shown that we can't rely on them, and I have some evidence that we can rely on them, um, because people's judgments tend to fall within a, an acceptable range. One versus one cases. I think there we have no problem of uh, identification. I can identify fully with you, I can do the Smithian thing, I place myself in your position and in your position and I look at it from both points of view. Our moral faculties are probably best displayed in such cases. That's why I have such faith in that initial, the Anne, not the initial, the Anne versus Bob case I just showed you. And then I think we should build on that using theory rather than relying too much on intuition. However, I think to my surprise, that wasn't the intention of my own experiment, but my experiment seems to show that we're pretty good at modest-sized group versus modest-sized group cases so long as they're dissimilar along both dimensions. It's as if I've tested a telescope on an area where I kind of know the answer, and the telescope isn't perfect, but 80% of the time it's in the right area consistently for, in, for individuals with no prior uh, experience of choosing. So I think that's 
uh, a mixed answer, and uh, I'll leave it there. Thank you. Okay, so we've got about uh, just a bit more than 20 minutes for questions. So, okay, uh, thanks. Um, I, I agree with the Smithian conclusions. I, I, I really like the, the way that you, you uh, edit up the argument for it. But there's, there's a couple of things that, that I'd like to say uh, from, from the sort of more restrictive perspective on, on intuition. So, just first, as kind of a report, when you gave the first case mm. and asked for an intuition, I was like, I, I can't. This, I don't have anything to get a hold on in this case. It's, it's mm. too abstract. It's too, and, and that, well, that makes a lot of sense on a sentimentalist view of intuition. You need something to, to get a get a hold hold of there. Uh, but the other other reason why I, I find it difficult, I feel like there's something missing. There, there's information. There's more information that I need to really really have a feeling one way or another. So so that's why if, if you really wanted somebody's um, intuitions, you. In, in, the, in the sort of epistemically significant sense, uh, you might as well show them the table on page three, with that includes the, the table one similarity alternatives, that has the, um, uh, the calculated the, the sums of gain in, 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 in treatment, and then ask them for their intuitions about the, the case. I mean, surely those would be the more reliable intuitions. You kind of have done the kind of reflection that it takes to before you can really arrive at a, a kind of... So whenever you can do that, I think, as a matter of methodological principle, you should you know, do the non-moral stuff first, and only then yourself reflect or ask other people what their, what their intuition is. So, so that's, that's my kind of first kind of substantial point to, on that. May uh, I, I mean, I to that one? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah okay, yeah, go on. Oh, yeah. So why didn't I include this um, information? Well... <coughs> One element is whatever information you include, will, people will tend to think that they have to use it. And they might regard this, like my uh, physics student, yeah. uh, the, the physics respondent, as the criterion, right? or as a suggested criterion. I didn't want to do that. Right. But uh, also, if I, if I may... If one's trying to test, on the analogy, to test uh, on one's instrument, so to speak, yeah. right? one doesn't uh, display the answer on the screen of the instrument while one's using it, right? Or uh, I, I'm trying to look at, at the following type of thing. How do people process the following information? Yeah. Number of people saved, severity of harm they're saved from. Um, and without making explicit any type of decision rule that they have to use. What's the decision rule that comes to mind? Right? Or when no decision rule comes to mind, how do they choose anyway? What's their revealed preference? Yeah. So that's why I didn't give that information. Right, right. so and, and I think it's a very valuable project that you're against and, there's, and, and, and great research. But, but you know, if, if you're interested in, in, in kind of intuitions in a you know, what, what, what people's real interest about these cases, this information shouldn't hurt that. I mean, it's, it's very obvious. I mean, you might wonder, you know, if, if, if you thought that that's the rule that you're supposed to use, well, anyone can see that. I mean, I'd be like, no, that can't be the intention. I would be like, well, no, yeah. But anyway, so that's, that's, that's just uh, one thing. Another thing is that, um, that you could kind of 
um, come up with a, with a defense of uh, preferring A to B uh, while preferring E to A. This uh, is this the exercise of why philosophers are better at confabulating than others. But here's, here's I, I just I that would be my response. So, uh, so I thought, well, I'm, I'm thinking of these as kind of bands within which uh, the, the the differences in, in, in treatment gains don't, don't matter. Mm. So I prefer A to B, but I prefer C to B and C to A. I, I prefer C to D. I prefer. Uh, I have to take a look at. Yeah. Uh, there's C, B, A, B, and then E, C, D, A, B, by, you know, cut bounds like that. So you can, you can actually, even after having all that information, you can have the induced model. No, you can, people, I, I care about people in that a pretty healthy group, then I just look at the numbers. People who are in that group, I look at that. So, so there's, there's lots of ways to, uh, I think, to avoid the transitivity error that it's a clear signal that you're making a mistake. While making some use of the similarity base, uh, idea that some some small differences in one dimension can be ignored. So, but so I, I agree that um, we could find reasons. I mean, th th look, I, I gave you the uh, the subject thirty five, right? Yeah. And trying yeah, to no, I agree with subject thirty five. Yeah. Subject thirty five doesn't sound strange at all. Oh, no, it seems no. quite uh, reasonable. The point about heuristics is that they they are quite reasonable in general terms. Otherwise, we wouldn't use them. Yeah. As shortcuts, right? I mean, birds do it. Bees. I'm not going to sing again, but you get the idea. So we 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 place people in situations in which artificially a heuristic which is useful leads them out to do things that they that maybe on reflection they wouldn't want to do. It would be very interesting if you know the next stage of this research would be to say uh, you know to have maybe a discursive element afterwards. Talking with someone like subject 35. Yeah. I'll give them the sums there and see if they still hold on to that. Yeah. Okay, um, we've got quite a long list of questions, so let's try and keep them quite short. Uh, Tom? Very counterintuitive to say 20 is the number here, yeah, right? 
and, and a lot of utilitarian. However, I don't want to use cases like this uh, against utilitarianism. Why? Because the mere fact that the number is very, lo very larger, but maybe we can have some confidence that it's more than 20. But um, the way it's cases like this, or even you know, 0.99, etc., someone uh, has a mild headache or something, are used by Cam, Scanlon, Temkin, etc. I think it should be ruled out on grounds of unreliability of our intuitions, inability to process large, the moral importance of large number of people suffering from something. So if we want to reject utilitarianism, it has to be on other grounds. So we're more safe here, for example. Now, you're quite right that um, uh, Josh Green and uh, John, it's Jonathan Barrett, right, right, the paper, I, I, I read it a while back, show that just as people are, uh, have declining marginal utility of money, when you tell them, no, we're dealing with well-being, they do it the same again, right? although somewhat less strong. That's why it's very important, very innovative, the way Nord, Eric Nord, set up these experiments initially. It's a bit technical, but what happened is he elicited the scale from zero to one, the, the, the points, these descriptions on the scale, first, in intrapersonal trade-offs. So this is how we got the point on the scale. <clears throat> you describe, you say you're a young person, you're in perfect health, but from tomorrow you will live with this impairment, and you describe the impairment, okay? For the rest of your normal life, lifespan. It won't shorten your life. Now, here's, and this is the way health econo ec economists do it. Um, here's a pill. If you take this pill, you will be fully cured of this disease with probability P. Probability 1 minus P, you will die instantly. If P is 1, chance of successful treatment, right, you would obviously take it. If P was 0 and you regarded this as better than uh, death, you would not take it. Somewhere between 0 and 1 is a probability for which you are roughly indifferent, you might take it, you might not, okay? That is this. So, the typical respondent, this doesn't have to be the same for everyone, of course, but the typical respondent said, I would accept a 30% chance of full cure, a 70% chance of dying, as be roughly indifferent to a treatment that did that to me, to living in this way. And you might think these are bizarre, but actually that's the way medical procedures are. They involve a risk, a chance of a full cure, also a chance of death, even something as small as getting your tooth capped, right? You might die. Um, so that's where these numbers come from. So, so it's a long answer. You start with that. You, that's your utility measure for intrapersonal trade-offs. So that, and then you say, so elicited, right? Do you say, now we make it an interpersonal trade-off. Do you say Bob or Anne? Now, the thought is that in these types of cases, you've already shown, that by the person's own measure, these are equally large improvements, right? Where equally large improvement means in the currency of probability of survival, there are equally large gaps, right? So you've tried to compensate for this idea of um, uh, lack of accepting that there's really a cardinal measure. Okay. I was wondering if I 
Microsoft's question. So I too was curious why even if you didn't provide the utility utility values, you didn't give them a chance to calculate the utility, even if they thought it might matter. And so I was thinking a really strong test of some of these hypotheses would be to provide the utility values and still show the kinds of differences that you showed. You can imagine that in the in the non-similarity cases, even if you provide the utility like you did for us, we will still favor the worst off, even though we recognize that there's a cost of utility. Yep. And the other case, it, it seemed like there was a fourth cell that was missing here, which would be the favoring the better off at no cost of utility. So you showed us that people might be bad at math, but not bad at distributive justice. They might use the sort of similarity heuristics, heuristic because it, they're too lazy to do the math um, in that case in calculating utility. But if you gave them the utility value and they still favor the better off in that case, then maybe that would suggest that people don't reflectively endorse maxi men above a certain point. And I think that would be interesting to see too. Yeah. Good. So on the last point you mentioned, it, it's not that when I say people are prepared to sacrifice total utility for the worst off, that's not mean that they endorse maximin, right? Maximin is very extreme. Yeah. <clears throat> most are just willing to sacrifice some total utility for the sake of the worst off. Now, so you're right, and it pushes in the same direction as Auntie. There, 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 there is a worry. Have I just shown people are bad at math? And that when they're trying to calculate, they use a calculating heuristic. Right. Um, and, they, and they think that that will yield them the utilitarian answer, but it won't. Okay. That is a, a genuine worry. Now, here's, um, I, there was two things I was going to say in response to that worry. The first thing is, they weren't just trying to do a utility calculation. The other cases show that they, that, that would not be sufficient for them. Okay. So depriving them of one particular number that you can calculate isn't, a, uh, isn't depriving them, per se, of the number that they want. But then the other, sorry, the, the, the other point is that, look, there's only so much information people can take in. This was a really info-intensive experiment. Four pages of explanation, what is a cardinal measure of well-being, four practice choices, etc. I'm doing display your choices, doing choices 48 times. Every bit of information you add has a threat of you have to have another hypothesis about how they're going to use that information, and then you can't draw any conclusions. So... I thought I would bias people too much by including this information, and by making it easily calculable, I would invite them to do something which the physicist student did because it was easily calculable for him, which is not what I wanted them to do. I wanted them to genuinely engage in the trade-off of number of people versus severity. So I don't think, I mean, for every reason you can give me for including the information, I think there's, a, there's stronger reasons for excluding it. Right, so, just, so I guess my question was, less in that spirit and more kind of pushing you on the extent to which you think people are making normative mistakes to the extent that they're being inconsistent across this scale. And my question is whether people would actually reflectively endorse that difference in the theories that they're applying across the scale. That's a good question. So I, I never got, I, I simply have no answer to it because that would be the, so to speak, round two, right, to have discussion afterwards. Though then one might be afraid of confabulation. Yeah, so in a way this picks up 
on one answer you were, you were giving uh, Leanne about why you didn't put in the total utility. I speculate that the reason why we were bad, a bad group for you, we didn't, we didn't uh, manifest as much similarity-based reasoning as you would have predicted is that you had actually already mentioned priority for the worst off. Yeah. And that primus. Yes. Uh, I know this is not a good experimental setting in any case. Yes, right. So yeah. I just, that's just a, that was just a premise. Yes, thank you. Uh, but now, a question um, about this in relation to tempting. Uh, so you're assuming transitivity in a certain way, right? I think, doesn't Kempkin reject transitivity? So how do we adjudicate this? Yes. I mean, I, I confess I sort of go on your side of this, but I don't know. Yeah. Good. So this wasn't an argument against Temkin on transitivity. Right. Okay. And it's interesting, uh, though, um, like uh, Tversky, I, can't, I do actually get in transitivities. I didn't include that today. Um, but I don't rely on... Tra so uh, Tversky's original experiment, remember, with the Harvard students, claimed to show people using this heuristic by making them do something irrational that, for which the heuristic was the best explanation, right? Violate transitivity. If A is better than B and B is better than C, etc. Now, I actually do get those in transitivities, but my main argument doesn't rely on that. It relies on them being outside of the range. Remember that the, the graph I had of where the normal range is and the right. abnormal range? Right. That's what I'm relying on as my main, the transitivity is supporting evidence. Now, even Temkin, who might uh, dispute a transitivity-based criterion, in most of his work, defends an egalitarian criterion which here would push you in the normal range. Um, so I was criticizing his use of certain types of examples based on my experiment and other people's experiments, not his claim about transitivity, although I also believe that is wrong, but that's for other reasons. This one. Okay. Thank you. Um, my question is uh, related to the uh, Tversky experiment. Uh, you mentioned
a country in a war or if I work in a hospital and I see that people all day, as I see people dying each day, then maybe I will prioritize people who are not so sick, who are not so bad. Yes? Yes. Good. So you're quite right. Now, the main point of the experiment itself was descriptive. I then drew some normative conclusions at the end. Now, descriptively, you're completely right, I think, that you know, what, the, what people are, what's in people's minds when they're answering this question is a whole host of different issues, right? For, they've never seen this well-being measure before, right? And my four pages of introduction uh, probably didn't do much then... I hope to basically familiarize them with it. They, they might have been skeptical about it. They might have had all these other assumptions. For, you mentioned cultural context. So there was a Singapore, Singaporean student. They identified their country at the end. Who wrote, his rule was the one I mentioned briefly, always save the greater number. Okay? And he wrote an explanation. Look, sick people are a burden on society. We should get as many people healthy as possible. And that will produce more wealth. And then, I, I can't remember whether he did or didn't actually make the point that the wealth could then be used to care for the sick. Uh, maybe I'm reading, maybe a false memory. Anyway, that point, of course, no, that, that's a perfectly reasonable way of making decisions, even given the questions I've asked. But it, it falls outside of what I'm calling, you know, the normal moral range. One hopes in a case like this, look, I have 82 people that some degree of cultural variability is screened out. Moreover, there are students, most of them, over half are students, who are used to deal with abstract concepts and are actually used to take on, they're used to accept if a lecturer stands there and says, please use this concept. They go, yeah, sure, no problem. Right? So I'm not claiming that, this, that my findings would be true uh, on this, if I did this experiment in Brazil, it, it would be very different. The moral claims I made, I, I do think, are universal, right? That, I mean, the Brazilian healthcare system, interestingly, I have a student working on it, uh, because of the way it's judicialized, right? you have a right to health and you can take to the state, it gives priority to the better off, because the better off have better access than the, than the worse off. So I think that's wrong. And that, so I, I made a mix of descriptive and normative claims. Descriptively, you're completely right. There will be cultural difference. My normative claims, I would hope, to be true and universal. Yeah. Okay, we're basically out of time, but I've got Sorry. two questions on the list. I don't know if Simon and Guy want to quickly ask their questions, and then Alex can respond to one or both. Okay, okay. So, uh, I'm also, I'm interested in why we got very different results in your experiment. And uh, it seems like, um, okay, so, so one thing that's a bit odd about this paper to me is that you draw this conclusion about people making decisions not within the normal reasonable range, that is to the right utilitarian, when they didn't even know the total utility numbers, and none, I take it none of us did. Um, but something that struck me as similar wasn't the numbers of people in the, in the first two examples, but the total utility uh, difference, right? So, so the potential utility gain was similar, uh, whichever choice we yep. made. So you pick the worst lot. There's a, so there's some similarity-based decision-making for you, but not based on the numbers of people. Also, your last example where you've got one-on-one -on -one example, that also looks like a bit of similarity-based decision-making to me. You've got about the same gain for Bob as for Anne, 
and Bob is much worse off. So we've got a similar factor and a differentiation. So I want to know why you have confidence in that and, and why the confidence is in result. Okay. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Just two, two very, very small and quick points. One is just, um, just about the, the, the Stalin's logic point. So it, it just seems to suggest a possible experiment that take the trolley case and use it between software design. Then you can push one to say five, as in the standard case, or push two to say five. And it more or less predicts that more people will be willing to push two. Yes. So that, that's an easy thing. Uh, it's just a cycle. Nice point. Uh, yeah. Just uh, about the way you use intuition. So, and it connects to your normative conclusion. So, there are two things that could be happening in your scope. One is people are just considering this case, they have an intuition, an immediate response, not exactly what I'm talking about intuition. And that intuition is driven by this heuristic operating unconscious. Therefore, we can't trust our intuition. But another thing that could be happening is that people are actually employing that heuristic. And that seems to fit your subject. You, you know, they seem to know what they're doing. Huh? Yes. This is similar, let's ignore it. Let's. Yes. In which case, it's not as clear that your conclusions follow the normative one because you could just tell people, don't use this heuristic. Just follow your real intuition. Now, people may not have that intuition, but, but I think that's left open by, by what you really showing. Good. Which set of questions? Okay, let's see if I can do it quickly. Why this room didn't work out the way my um, experiment, my experimental subjects worked out? Well, the setting is very different, right? And it's in the middle of a, the start of a philosophy talk where I mean, it was already mentioned where I'm, I talk about priority to the worst off. Um, so in that respect, this wasn't a proper experimental setting, right? So I, I don't. It would have been nice if you'd followed my subjects, but I, I don't. I think it's uh, much relevant one way or the other in, in this particular case. Now, your second question was, sorry, remind me. Um, it's to do with the factors. So, so in the first case as well. Oh, yes, I remember now. Yes, isn't there similarity in my, in my Anne and Bob case as well? Yeah. Yes, yes. But that is a good point. Well, of course, it doesn't follow that similarity based decision-making is always bad. Um, I mean, as a, as a heuristic, obviously, well, it would never be a heuristic if it didn't often yield good results. But you're right. You're right that um, it may lead us to overweight the different factor compared to the one that's nearly the same, the 0 0.15, 0 0.16. Okay. It's already interesting, though, that in that case, we regard the fact that someone is worse off than somebody else as relevant. Right? The model doesn't presuppose what dimensions people assign to objects. Right? They, so for a utilitarian, there's just one relevant dimension here, right? size of gain. So in that case, applying similarity-based decision-making, there's just dominance. One dominates the other along one dimension. Well, there is no, you know. So one can use it at the very least to reveal the following that people regard a second dimension, how well off someone is, as relevant. Okay, so in that sense, but you are right that I, you know, sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander, right? So that should, uh, that, that 
And that may lead us to try to look at group versus group cases. Remember I said the, the, the other one that we might look at? Because that allows us, dissimilarity group versus group cases, allows us to be another independent test of utilitarianism. Right? Like the ones I did, actually, of the possibility of utilitarianism. So that's right, that's interesting, thank you. Um, this is a problem with taking two questions in. Uh, just remind me of the hint of the second point you made, which was a yeah, just about <laughs> more nutrition which are the product of that uncommon yes. heuristic. Yes, very good. Yes, you're right. Okay. It's true that that if I'm strict about saying in, intuitive judgment is the uh, system one judgment then it can't be the conscious application of a heuristic. The moment that it is, it's no longer an intuitive judgment. Now, it may be true that my subjects consciously applied the similarity heuristic. Okay. And that may also be true of Tversky's original subjects. They verbalized similar type of thing. So, if that's true, then um, maybe uh, my title should be different. I should be careful not to identify what I'm calling our... Uh, I should maybe leave intuitions out and simply say, can we trust our judgments about certain types of trade-off cases, whether they're intuitive judgments in the system one case type reasoning or applied you know, reasoning through cases. Um, and I'll just say, this class of cases, we should be careful of our judgments about these cases because um, we may either consciously or unconsciously use a heuristic which can lead us astray. I mean, just a might complicate your normative conclusion. You kind of say, let's not use this case in philosophy. While the more direct conclusion, let's, if we use these cases, let's not apply that heuristic. Consciously not try to yeah. similarize the other thing. It's true, but I think the, the look the, the, the heuristic may partly be unconsciously applied. So we better given we better stop. Okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> We've gone well over now, so uh, sorry, next thank, thank, thank you. Thank you.